Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we find about the ways that life manages to find a way to survive. From the earliest days of the Earth, life has been churning away, struggling, surviving. So we look at ways science is trying to find out when exactly life started, when it started to move, and how it manages to vibe in some of the most extreme locations on the Earth, and what that might mean for understanding life across the universe. One of the most important questions that scientists struggle to answer is, how old is life on Earth? And there's a number of reasons why you want to know an answer to that. Well, obviously there's life here today, but when exactly did it start? and how. Because learning that yields a lot of interesting information about the rest of the universe. If life developed relatively late in the 4.5 billion year history of the planet Earth, then that suggests that life is quite difficult to occur, and that the what we have here on Earth is quite a rare and extraordinary case. But if life developed really, really early on in the age of the Earth, well, that would suggest that that it could happen not just here on Earth, but in many places, because it happened at that point in Earth's history, which was incredibly volatile, to say the least. Rolling seas of magma, really unstable atmosphere, you name it. So knowing this start date for life on Earth helps us understand the very formation of life on this planet, but also life potentially across the universe. And some researchers from the Earth Life Science Institute, ELSI, of Tokyo Institute of Technology, have been probing into this very question, trying to figure out, by tracing the chemical remains of bacteria, just how long life has existed on Earth. But answering a more fundamental and important question, was life in this very early and unstable period of Earth, as we know it in bacterial form, was it thriving? Or was it just barely struggling to survive? Because if it was just barely struggling to survive, then it's even more of a miracle that life managed to reach its levels here today on Earth. But if it was thriving in the most hostile circumstances in the history of the planet Earth, then that tells you an awful lot about the likelihood of life developing across the universe. How do scientists actually determine and study such a small, microscopic thing as bacterial life from billions and billions of years ago. Comparing it to, say, looking at dinosaur bones and the fossil record, studying microbes and the remains of microbes is even more painstaking and daunting task. You can look at dinosaur bones in a museum, but trying to analyse microbes and get a feel for just how well they were doing before they passed away relies on the delicate balance of studying isotopes. Now, to explain what an isotope is, in case you don't remember, we have all the chemical elements that you're probably aware of, and inside, and I'm going to use some summary terms here, we have protons, neutrons, and electrons. I'm not going to get into the detail of what all these things are, but when you have something that has a varying number of neutrons inside its core, you actually end up with what we call an isotope. It's slightly different from other formats of it, Think about it like people all from the same family, or a group of identical twins, but all, one of, each of them is slightly different than the other. You can imagine the carbon isotope. Now, a stable form of carbon, like carbon-12, 12, 12C, 
has six protons and six neutrons. Pretty balanced. But there's another isotope, another variant of flavor, that has six protons and seven neutrons. That's carbon-13C. And there's a lot of other isotopes out there for a whole bunch of different molecules. Now, normal, naturally occurring carbon dioxide, CO2, has a pretty consistent ratio of carbon-12C to 13C which is interesting, but carbon-12C reacts slightly differently. It basically gets used faster, and it's slightly lighter, obviously, because it has one less neutron. But when it comes to microbes, well, if a microbe eats and ingests a lot of carbon dioxide, for example, taking in that carbon dioxide, using it as a fuel source to build their own cells, if they take in a lot of carbon-12C compared to carbon-13C, well, they end up a little bit lighter because they've absorbed that in. And this is an example of studying and analysing really the fundamental isotopic composition, as it's referred to, of molecules left behind by bacteria. And we, from that, can actually get a signature. You can analyse what that microbe was doing at the time. And this is really, really important as the researchers from Tokyo Institute of Technology go on to outline. Because you can do that not just with carbon, but a whole bunch of other interestingly stable isotopic compounds. Take sulfur, which has 16 protons. And there's a lot of different variants of stable isotopes of sulfur. But there's one 32S with 16 neutrons. There's one 33S with 17 neutrons. And 34S with 18 neutrons. Now, sulfur isotopes leave behind different patterns in the microbes. And thus, you get a pretty interesting history. Because many microbes are actually able to use sulfates as fuel. They process that sulfate and excrete sulfide, which is another type of sulfur compound. The sulfide waste of these microbes then gets saved, for want of a better word, inside the geological record, the rocks, and makes its way into minerals like iron sulfide 2 or mineral pyrite the shiny little rocks and what you can do with that is look at the different types of food and get a feel for how much it was consuming as part of that process so not only can you trace the history of the microbes you can see how much they were eating and how much they were leaving behind by analyzing effectively their metabolism if these microbes were chowing down on a lot of sulfide and churning out a lot of sulfide waste, that indicates they weren't barely struggling to survive. They were plentifully multiplying and reacting and consuming lots of energy and leaving behind lots of waste. And based upon this, the researchers from Tokyo Institute of Technology actually built a pretty exciting model where you could make predictions left behind on the fossil record and say, okay, well, based on these conditions, this is the type of microbe we expect to see. And this is how energetic it was. And when you compare that data, you actually get a really cool insight into just how well life was thriving on Earth. But it just doesn't stop there. This concept, as outlined by Associate Professor Sean McGlynn, could be used to analyse and understand the processing of other isotopes, such as carbon and nitrogen isotopes which are really linked to the not only the geochemical record, what we have saved behind in the rock, but also gives us an insight into the actual state of these microbes and how those microbes and the enzymes inside of them have evolved over the history of the Earth.
So being able to link and study the metabolism, just how much these microbes are chowing down on the resources around them, can be done by basically analyzing their waste products left behind. And from this, we can actually get a pretty interesting insight into the early history of life on Earth. And know that it wasn't just scraping by, but it was thriving in some of the most difficult conditions that you could possibly imagine. So not only does life find a way, but life finds a way and leaves behind a trail of waste, which we can study thanks to stable isotopes. Some great research out of Tokyo Institute of Technology, published in the journal Nature Communication. Now we know that life has been around for billions of years, but that was just really simple, basic life. When was the first moving, living thing? Which is an interesting question to ponder. And that's one that researchers from the University de Poitiers have been studying in detail. Now we have some records dating back to about 570 million years ago, which suggest motility, i.e being able to move around. But now, these researchers from the University of Poitiers, led by Abdurazak El-Abani, have been discovering a fantastic find, one that changes the landscape of how old we think moving organisms are. Not doubling, not tripling, more than tripling the age at which we first thought this occurred on Earth. Now, these oldest existing fossil records of multicellular moving organisms were found in a deposit in Gabon. Abdurazak El-Albani is actually a geologist working at the University of Poitiers. He's been studying and analysing this particularly exciting sample. Now, this deposit in the Franceville Basin allowed scientists to basically redate and shift back the start date of multicellular life on Earth way back an additional 1.5 billion years to 2.1 billion years ago. An awfully long time. Now, the reason why the researchers thought, well, all of this multicellular life probably occurred at a, a time in the Earth's atmosphere which was actually pretty suitable to life developing. It's like the peak in the dioxygenation of the atmosphere when there's a, a whole bunch of O2 there now, which hadn't been there before. And there was a calm and shallow marine environment, a far cry from the tumultuous early life of the Earth. But now, analysing this fossil record that they've been studying now for many years, the team has found an existence of fossilised traces of motility, some things in motion, that shows that certain multicellular organisms in this primitive and ancient marine ecosystem were sophisticated enough to move and wade through the mud absorbing and processing all that organic matter and finding the best sources of food. The team managed to accomplish all of this great research using 3D X-ray microtomography, which is basically a cool and interesting non-destructive imaging technique. And when they analysed these rock samples from Gabon using this, they found long, more or less sinuous structures that, which are tubular, which are about a few millimetres in length, and these run through very fine layers of sedimentary rock. 
when they analysed these, they could find that these weren't just naturally occurring geological chemicals. They are actually biological in origin. And it appeared pretty much at the same time the sediment was deposited. And what that means is you could trace these trails and the bits at the end where the long tubular structure is left. And you're basically finding, for want of a better term, small multicellular footprints in the mud. These traces are located next to fossilised microbial biofilms, which basically form carpets between superficial, or basically layers of sediment in the mud. So, potentially, these multicellular organisms detected were actually moving through the mud, trying to find the best sources of dioxygen, which would have been produced by cyanobacteria inside this mud. Now, it's difficult to know what these actual multicellular organisms look like because we only really have left behind the slight little bits of trails leading to these, these markings. But it could have been similar to a colonial amoeba which clustered together when resources become scarce, which they basically form, if you want to think of another word, a type of slug made up of lots and lots of amoeba working together. Now, that can move quite easily through mud. But this is actually the first trace we have of moving, hunting, for want of a better word, life, from 2.1 billion years ago. And this is just because we happen to have some mud which was captured in time for us and able to be found now. Unfortunately, though, for, the, for this particular piece of life, about 2.083 billion years ago, that peak level in dioxygen actually dropped off rapidly and would have led to a lot of death of different multicellular organisms, restarting the clock on the earliest formations of life. But this is an example of the way in which life would have worked in those very early stages of the Earth's history. And there's some great research published by the University of Poitiers setting back the clock on when moving hunting organisms were first on this planet. And this research was published in the journal National Academy of Science Proceedings. Now, when you come to study life on Earth, one of the most interesting places to look is deep under the ocean. Now, why would you want to go all the way down there to look at microbes? Well, around ocean vents, gaps where magma bubbles up to the ocean floor, there's these amazing geothermal hotspots of life, such as what exists all the way down the Juan de Fuca Ridge, a mid-ocean ridge off the coast of Washington State. It's basically where two ocean plates are separating apart and generating new oceanic crust. And at that exact location is a hub of geothermal activity. At that base of the ocean floor at that point, 2.6 kilometres down, is actually some pretty amazing life in the form of microbes, such as Hydrotherma archaeota which is a group of microbes that live in incredibly extreme environments, deep, deep underwater, in the soil, basically as a spot where the earth is tearing itself apart and making new crust. And a team of researchers from Bigelow Laboratory of Ocean Scientists at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, the Department of Energy Genome Institute, have been analysing and sequencing microbes from this incredibly remote and extreme location. Well, this research is being led by Beth Orchard, a senior research scientist at Bigelow Laboratory. 
Now, as she says, the majority of life on Earth is microbial, and most microbes have never been cultivated. So these findings of their research emphasise why single-cell genomics are an important tool for discovering how a large portion of life functions. And she's exactly right. Because when they analysed these microbes from deep underneath the ocean, they found something pretty amazing. That these microbes are actually taking their energy from processing carbon monoxide, not dioxide, but monoxide, CO, and sulfates. And why is that special? Well, it's a metabolic strategy that is pretty rare and often overlooked. And they use these chemicals to make energy through a process known as chemosynthesis. And that's really interesting. But not only did they find a really cool overlooked strategy for feeding yourself deep underneath the ocean, they also found something even more exciting, and that is genetic evidence that these particular microbes are able to move on their own expressing motility. And as we talked about earlier, motility is incredibly important for being able to find food, especially if you're trying to survive in an extreme environment where there's a limited supply of nutrients for you to get. So by sequencing the genomes and cultivating these microbes from deep the ocean floor, it enables researchers to identify new and exciting ways that life can actually develop by studying the microbes literally buried alive beneath the seafloor. And what's fascinating about it is how weird those microbes are compared to everything else. And if you throw this data, along with research we spoke about earlier, you can see just how varied microbial life is. And if you extrapolate out, just how many strange and weird ways that microbial life manages to find a way and be incredibly complex. Which suggests, well, if you're looking across the universe, that not only is life potentially not unique, but the forms of life that might be out there might be stranger than we could possibly imagine. So this is some great work out of the Bigelow Laboratory for Origin Scientists, published in the ISME Journal. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Life continues to astound scientists with the ways in which it started and survived on some of the chaotic conditions of early Earth, and manages to survive now in some of the strangest places you can imagine. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.